Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of our podcast series called Catching the Last Wave. I'm Giulio and I will be your host today. In this episode, we are honored to have as our guest Paolo Balena Corondawa, who is a peace practitioner and educator working in peace building for more than 30 years in Fiji, the Pacific region and internationally. He is currently Transcend Oceania's program director and his role includes programs designs, implementation and monitoring, evaluation and learning for the organization. Paolo champions work in peace building education and training, masculinity and non-violence, climate change, conflict and peace building, trauma awareness and healing, and he's also a mediator and facilitator in situation of social conflicts and injustices. He's a co-founder of Transcend Oceania, which is a non-government peace building and human development organization working in Fiji and the Pacific. Transcend Oceania, in partnership with other peace building stakeholders, is currently working in communities in Fiji affected by the impact of climate change, focusing particularly on the social impacts of climate change. We are looking forward to hear from Paolo about the social dimension, conflicts and peace building related to climate change. Thank you, Paolo, for being here with us today. It is an honor to have you as part of our podcast, and we're looking forward to hear from you about peace building, conflict, and conflict resolution in relation to climate change. So please, let me start with an introductory question. If you could please uh, briefly tell us about uh, your work and the work of your organization on peace building, mediation, and conflict resolution related to climate change. Maybe you can give us a quick overview of the program and projects you are working on at the moment. My name is uh, Paolo. I am the director of programs at Unsend Oceania, which is a peace building and development organization that works in the Pacific region and based in Fiji. Our work with uh, peace building, conflict and uh, climate change actually started about three years ago. We are only eight years old as an organization, relatively new, and our work on uh, peace building, conflict and climate change started three years ago after joining a network uh, of the Toda Peace Institute and other um, stakeholders in the Pacific whose focus is on climate change and conflict. And so out of that, we developed uh, some working partnership uh, with organizations, particularly with Conciliation Resources, who is an international peace building NGO based in the UK, but has an office in Melbourne, Australia. And they've been working in the Pacific and other areas on uh, conflict. And since we are both peace building organizations, we wanted to explore together the work on uh, climate change and conflict and what can we do within the peace building area. So that started about three years ago. And uh, that work focused on three communities that are impacted by climate change in the northern division here in Fiji. The first community is uh, Vunindongaloa which is the first relocated, fully relocated village in Fiji. Vunindongolo was relocated in 2014. The other community we are working in is the Naviavia community in Wailebu West in uh, the province of the Konrove. Naviavia is a community that uh, composed of descendants of Solomon Islanders who were brought in during the Black Birding Days by the British colonizers. And so they struggling with land security and their own identity in there. This is related to climate change. And then the other community is uh, Wunisavisavi on the southeastern coast of Vanualevu. That's right on the coast and is currently experiencing impacts of rising sea level. 
And so those are the three communities that we are working with at the moment. And our role is really to journey with these communities, particularly in areas where there are conflicts, and how we build and strengthen the capacity of people to deal with the conflicts non-violently. And so we've done some training. We've also created dialogue spaces where parties in conflict can come together to talk about the conflicts that are actually coming out of the impacts of climate change. Yeah, so basically building the capacity of the people in the community and the communities themselves to be able to deal with climate change-related conflicts. Thank you so much, Paolo, for this brief uh, introduction and uh, overview of your work. It's uh, very interesting to see that, especially the nexus between conflicts and climate change in a place like the Pacific is very interesting to see the work of your organization because we have uh, a lot of work, even with the UN, a lot of material, a lot of studies and everything in other regions like the Sahel, where like armed conflicts and different sort of uh, conflicts uh, drivers are there. But from the Pacific, I think there is a a bit of a lacking of uh, studies uh, for the unique challenges that those communities are facing. So it's great to know about your work on conflicts, mediation, and non-violent dialogue. So thank you for that. And uh, let me jump to the second question so we can see more in detail the Pacific context and the climate change and conflicts uh, nexus. So when it comes to human security related to climate change, what are the main drivers and dynamics of potential insecurity and conflicts in this region? So in other words, how does climate change fuel insecurity and conflicts, especially here in the Pacific, where climate change has been recognized by Pacific leader as the single greatest threat to the security and the stability? Thank you. So because our work focuses on climate change and conflict, we are interested in the social impact of climate change. So how does climate change affect people? How does climate change affect relationships? How does climate change affect their identity? How does it affect people and their connections to the land, to the environment, to the seas, and whatever is surrounding them? So that's the focus of our work. And when climate change happens, it does affect people in many different ways. It does affect the environment on which people depend on in terms of their food security, in terms of their livelihood. But also it does affect uh, people's connectivity to the land that they live on and to their surrounding environment. As we work with indigenous people in Fiji and indigenous people's perspective here in Fiji, the land and everything on the land, the oceans and everything in the ocean, the atmosphere that is above us, we consider that as an extension to who we are as indigenous people. So really they are part of us. And when things happened to the land, things happened to the ocean, things happened to the atmosphere above us, it does have an impact on us because we see that connectivity, that relationship that we have with the land and the seas and everything around us as very sacred to us, sacred to our identity and sacred to us as indigenous people. So, for instance, in some of the communities that we are working in, in, in Banolevu, for example, in Vunisavisabi, where they are experiencing day in and day out rising sea levels, it has affected, and, and the people of Vunisavisabi actually were sent there by the paramount chief of their province of Dakonrobe to safeguard 
the sacred grounds for the first official residence of the first paramount chief of the Kondrove. He's now deceased because of his status. They need to safeguard that sacred ground where he lived many, many years ago. Unfortunately, because it's right on the coast, it's been washed and eroded day in and day out by the rising sea level. And apart from that, it's not only the sacred ground, it's the village itself has been inundated with seawater and therefore has destroyed their farming grounds, has destroyed their homes even, because the water comes right into their home. And now because they don't have much land, they have nowhere to go because they understand that they have a commitment to their role, to their traditional role. They cannot move away from there, even with the increase in um, sea level rise and what it does in the destruction of their land, of their farms, of their burial grounds, of their water sources, of their food security and all this. Even though all this has happened, they still believe that they have that role to fulfill and therefore stay on. And so climate change has affected the, the people there in many of those areas. In other two communities that we work in, it does bring a lot of problem to people in the community. For some of the communities, apart from these three communities, other communities that are being affected by climate change that we have had the chance to also visit, their sense of community is getting weaker and weaker because we live in communal communities and every, everything is done in the community. We support each other in the community. And all that is becoming weaker now because people are then moving away from the normal residential ground in the communities to build farm homes away from the village. And the farm homes in some places, they would travel one whole day to get those farm, to those farm homes. And because of the distance travel, they will stay and farm for a long time and then they come back to the village. But when they come back to the village, they miss all the obligations that they have for the survival of the community. For example, for when there is a, a celebration or when there is a visit from government, a visit from churches and NGOs where the community have to come together to prepare food and things to support the people come, they're no longer there. And so the community is left with the older people and the very young people. And so that becomes a burden on the older people to pay those responsibilities because the young people have gone away. In Naviavia, as you probably know, the settlement that composed of the descendants of Solomon Islanders who were brought in by the British colonizers during the blackbirding days, for over 100 years they've lived in this community. And in 2014, the landowner, which is the Anglican Church, Diocese of Polynesia, actually sold the land surrounding them to Kiribati because Kiribati was looking for place for people to migrate to because of their situation suffering from the impacts of climate change. And they sold 5,000 acres of land surrounding Naviavia and they are now remaining with the 300 acres of land to survive on. I was there a few days ago on a project related to climate change and mediation. And before we started the process, one of the women in the community was reporting on a case that happened that morning where there was an argument between two families on a plot of land where they are farming because one family was seemed to have been encroaching on the other family's plot. 
And this, they say, is regularly happening in Naviavia because the community is growing, the numbers are growing, and the land they're sitting on is getting smaller and smaller. And so there's always the conflicts about where to go and farm to be able to support um, the family. But there's also the threat, apparently, Chinese company that's uh, been talking to the Kiribati government to come and develop the land because the previous governor of Kiribati actually wanted the people to move over and to migrate to Fiji on this piece of land. But this new president doesn't seem to prioritize migration and sees migration as the very, very last option for the people of Kiribati. And so what they're going to do is they have decided to develop the land to assist in their food security back in Kiribati because nothing can grow in Kiribati and all food is imported from overseas. But there's this potential partnership with this Chinese company that's coming to develop the land. And so the people of Naviavia feel threatened because once the Chinese company comes to develop the land, then it will affect their sources of livelihood because the 300 acres of land is right in the middle and surrounded by the 5,000 acres of land that's been bought by Kiribati. And then the fear that comes with that, because then their sources of livelihood are going to be taken away from them. Whatever they do with the land, if they're going to develop it, it's going to affect their water systems. It's going to affect sources of livelihood in the river and as well as the land surrounding them. And so there's, there's lots of conflicts that arise out of the impact of climate change on these communities in the areas that we are working up in the Northern Division. Thank you so much, Paolo, for giving us the, these very interesting insights of how climate change is like fueling insecurity and conflicts in the region with very concrete example. I really appreciate that because sometimes we can have the theory in our mind, but we don't know how actually conflicts are, you know, take place and why they take place and how they take place. So I think it's very interesting for our audience. Thank you for really contextualizing the Pacific perspective. So talking about the social impact on people, relationship, identity, but especially on land, which is something that is really strong here in the Pacific, needs to be understood if we want to actually address the conflicts related to climate change. So again, thanks for the very concrete example. So please let me ask you another sort of follow-up question about how you guys work when addressing conflict. What is the Transcend Oceania approach when addressing the conflicts related to climate change? And especially, how do you guys make sure that the action for human security are locally rooted and inclusive of the unique needs of Pacific communities? We developed a methodology three years ago to work with these communities. And that methodology, it's called the Just Peace Vanua methodology. And so we developed this methodology because in our scoping and baseline work in these three communities in the Northern Division, we found out that a lot of interventions into this community was coming from outside of the community and not really involving the community. In uh, peace building, we believe that while people are impacted by climate change, they also have the capacity to respond to climate change. And we wanted to acknowledge that people have the capacity because these people have lived in this community for many, many years. And this climate change thing has been experienced for many, many years in Fiji. And they continue to live and survive wherever they, they've lived. They have 
traditional and indigenous knowledge and approaches to actually work to address the impacts of the rising sea level, the erosion that happens on the shore and all that. They do have things in place because they have that indigenous knowledge and capacity to be able to respond. And so considering that and recognizing that people have ways to actually deal with this, we wanted to develop a methodology where the people in the communities are going to be involved from the beginning and not having to be seen as the victims of climate change, but to be seen as people who can actually do something to address the impacts of climate change, even before help comes in from the outside. So we then developed this methodology, and the methodology that starts with what we call the Isevu Sevu, which is our Fijian protocol that we used to ask to enter the community and to engage with the people and the Banua. So when we move into the community, we are not only engaging the people, but we are also engaging the Banua. That means the land, the seas and all that, because that's part, as I said before, an extension of who we are as indigenous people. And so when we go in, we go with the worldview. We also go in respecting people's worldviews about who they are, what does land and seas and oceans and everything else around them mean to them. And so we go in with this holistic worldview of the eco-relationality of uh, people with the environment and their surrounding. And therefore, our methodology is designed in such a way that considers that as really very important as the beginning. So valuing the worldviews of the people is the foundational principle of our approach with them. And so we begin with the Sevu Sevu. The Sevu Sevu is really a when you look at it, it's really a very short ceremony. At the most, it might take five minutes. But the Sevu Sevu means more than that for us in this methodology. It means that when we are moving into the community, once we've done the Sevu Sevu, we now see ourselves as the outsider intervener in these situations. We now see ourselves as part of the context. We now see ourselves as part of the context. And when we see ourselves as part of the context, relationship building is really very important for us. And so we start the Sevu Sevu with relationship building with the people. And therefore, you cannot build relationship by just going to do the Sevu Sevu and then come back. No, you stay on and talano with the people. And that's when you do your initial assessment in the building of relationship so that people will know that you are really interested in their community and in their concerns and all this. One old man, I won't mention the name of the community. It's in one of the three communities. One of the elders actually said, your approach is very different from everybody else who comes here. Because they come in, sometimes they don't bring a Sevu Sevu. They come in and ask us so many questions. And sometimes we really get tired of them asking us questions. And sometimes they come today, another group comes tomorrow, another group comes the other day, the next day, and then the next week, and people keep coming. And it's the same kind of questions they are asking us all that time. Same kind. They may ask us in, in many different ways, but we already know what they are asking. And so it causes some fatigue in us. So when people come and children come and tell us, oh, these people are here to come and see you, we usually feel that here comes more problem for us rather than seeing them as people who are coming to do that. Because the experience with these people is they come, do their thing, and then they go. And then that's it. For many, they don't return. For many, they don't bring back. 
the information about what they've done with all that information that they've uh, received from the community. And so for us, we go in and sit with the community. I remember in one of the communities, well, in the three communities, we spent the whole day lasting into the nights and just sitting Talanoa with the people about their hopes, about their aspirations, about their concerns with regards to climate change and its impact on them and their lives. And then the uh, Cebu Cebu would then lead us to do some research on the ground together with the people. So we actually gather the people together. And what we do is, because it's very difficult because of our dynamic in the traditional Fijian setting, to have women and young people talk when men are around, we develop processes where women have their own circles, young people have their own circles, and the men will have their own circles. So they talk about their hopes, their aspirations, their concerns the threats and the risks that they see in relation to climate change. And then, you know, after those discussions, bring the discussions back into the bigger group. And you can then hear the voices of women, of the young people in those scenarios. So we're very sensitive to those kind of dynamics that happens in uh, traditional settings and therefore use those approaches. The research then leads to the third stage of the methodology, which is sense-making. And again, bringing back the information from the research to the community to for sense-making and talking about it with the people of the, of the community. This is what we found. Does it really make sense to you or is it really what's happening? So again, it's verifying the information with people to make sure that uh, the information we are getting out of the research is useful for the community to be able to move on to the fourth stage of the process, which is community-led peace-building actions. Then we come together to talk about, you know, what we need to do in this community. This is the scenario we have. We found out from the little research that we've done. What do you think we should do? What resources do you have? What don't you have? What do you need? What support do you further need? Are there things that you can do with what's available rather than waiting for government, waiting for outside assistance to come? And that's what's uh, been happening in some of these communities. For instance, in uh, Winsef Savi, they've now built a seawall that's made of uh, sand uh, bags. So they fill the sand in the bags and they've started to build that, uh, that seawall. And they're working slowly to reclaim the land that's been uh, washed by the, the rising sea level. And the other two communities, Navievia, is working on, um, on um, a sustained dialogue process with the church about the land title on which they sit on, which still belongs to the church, but it does not give them any security for their future generation. And for Bunindongoloa, they're working on uh, post-relocation issues, uh, for instance, the infrastructure in the uh, community, because when that first community was fully relocated in Fiji, there was no standard operating procedure, SOP, in place. I think that's still in the process at the moment. There seems to be a guideline in place, but not actually working on the ground. So they're working with post-relocation issues that they had to face after having to be moved to this new site on which the new village uh, sits on. Thank you, Paolo, for uh, giving us this very detailed overview of how you're approaching communities when addressing conflicts and uh, related to climate change. It is very interesting. 
And thank you for explaining your methodology, which I find really, really interesting and uh, unique in a way. I really like the example that you mentioned because uh, we discussed that uh, in previous episode with other guests, uh, for example, with Sharon Bagwan-Rose from uh, Shifting the Power. And we also already mentioned about this, the community exhaustion. So people, even UN agency or NGOs or, you know, development partners coming into the communities, doing their own assessment and go. So, of course, that's uh, useful maybe for, you know, like data collection or whatever, but doesn't take into account all the things that you mentioned. So recognizing the role of the community, not just seen as a victim or passive actors, but rather acknowledging their role, which is key, as you said, uh, all the what you said about the knowledge, traditional knowledge and approaches to addressing climate change. That's uh, very, very interesting. And thank you again for that. I would just ask you one last question, which is basically a follow-up on this. So you talk about your approach. So I would like to ask you if you can uh, tell us why it is important for development partners uh, in the Pacific to include the peace building and conflict resolution aspects when addressing climate change. And how do you think this can be achieved? So how can we make sure we include the security aspects when addressing climate change. Yeah, because uh, climate change does bring about conflict in the community. And when there's conflict, there is a need for peace building work to happen. So it's it's not just about addressing the issue. For example, you know, there's rising sea level. It's affecting the village ground and the farming areas. It's not just about addressing that issue. But for us, from our peace building perspective, it's more about addressing relationships because conflicts are embedded in relationships. So climate change, in terms of what's happening now, we have no control of what other change in the climate will do to our communities and all that. In terms of rising sea level, as I've said, they will come and destroy the, the village grounds, destroy the food gardens, water sources the food sources, the burial grounds, the sacred grounds, for instance, like the people of Namibia, they will do all that. But when that happens, it does affect the relationship people have in that community. And for you to rebuild those relationships, you will need to bring in peace building in the process. So for instance, for us, it's how do you respond to these conflicts non-violently? Because there's competition really happening when climate change impacts a community. Competition over the scarce land that's available, over water sources, the farming grounds, over resources even. For example, it's very difficult for them to get uh, food from the sea. They either have to go deeper into the ocean to go and look, and it takes them a long, long time to even find a catch and then come back home. And in the evening, they've returned because they've spent too many hours in the sea. And then it causes some problems at home. Sometimes there's going to be a conflict between the mother and the father coming back uh, because, you know, the children are hungry and all that and nothing is uh, cooked and all this. Uh, and so it can result in domestic violence, for instance, in some in some cases. Whereas before they would just go a few meters out into the ocean and they're able to spend very short time and catch a lot of fish and come back home. And so there's all sorts of dynamics and relationships that's going to be affected in climate change impacted uh, communities. Their relationship with the land. And now when the land has been taken away from them, what do they do? How do they restore that relationship with the land when the land has been taken away from them as a result of the sea level rise? And of course, when we live in a community, you are given a spot in the community for you to sit on as where you're going to build your home and all that. 
We don't build our homes anywhere we want in our given piece of land. We are set up in such a way in our indigenous traditional structure where we belong to a space in the community and that's where we settle. And when that's been damaged by rising sea level, then where do we go? And so we might move into somebody else's piece of land, but often that can cause relationship problems. And so therefore, it is very important for development partners in the Pacific to include uh, peace building and conflict resolution aspect when addressing climate change. They need to be equipped with the peace building tools, the approaches, and they must go with peace building values and principles as they work in climate change impacted communities. And so that's really very important to integrate these. And so for us in our approach, we always promote an integrated approach in working in these communities because, for instance, mediation might not work in some situations. And what do we do then? Well, we have another tool that we can use. We can use dialogue. Perhaps people are traumatized. How can you go on to do mediation and resolve the conflict when people are still traumatized? How will they genuinely engage in the peace building process and the conflict resolution process if they are traumatized? Perhaps that needs to be attended to first before you can bring some mediation or reconciliation in the process. And so it's really very important for development partners to think of how important peace building and conflict resolution is in uh, Pacific communities that are impacted by climate change. Because climate change does bring in conflict in many, many situations. Many of the uh, climate change work in the Pacific focuses on adaptation and mitigation. There's not much focus on the social impact of climate change. What do we do with conflicts? What do we do with relationship problems that uh, have now emerged because people have no more land, people have no more food, the water sources have been destroyed. What do we do in those kind of situations with people competing and trying to survive in those kind of situations? Thank you, Paolo. Thank you again for explaining why it is so important for development partners to take into consideration the security aspects related to climate change. I totally agree on that. Like, If we want to really not just address the causes and the impacts at, at the surface, we really need to uh, have a comprehensive approach to address the root causes at the community level. So taking into account the social impacts and the conflicts and peace building aspects. And as you said, climate change clearly creates conflict. So if we want to really address it, we need to take into consideration peace building aspects and uh, conflict resolution measures. So thank you so much for that. I hope that was really useful for our audience, which also includes practitioners and development partners. So I really hope that the, your words are useful. And for me, they were. So um, thank you again for that. I'd like to conclude this podcast. If you have any final message that you would like to give to our audience. Yeah, I'd just like to uh, bring back the importance of focusing on the social impact of climate change. Because... Uh, Relationship is really very important for us in the Pacific. Wherever you go in the Pacific, relationship plays a major role in how we live our lives. And because relationship is often impacted by the impacts of climate change, in relation to what I mentioned before, it needs to be considered in climate change work and climate change financing. Because there's a lot of uh, conflicts that actually comes out of 
the impact of climate change and therefore there needs to be a very strong emphasis on the need to focus on the social impact of climate change in climate change work um, in the Pacific. Thank you so much for this last message, which really summarized this great conversation that we had. And uh, it's one of the key messages that you're bringing to us. And thank you for that focusing on social impacts of climate change. Thank you very much again. And this concludes our episode for today. Please stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.